Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, I'd like to start by inviting our children to uh, Children's Church. If you uh, want to go meet your teacher at the back there. Just an age-appropriate setting for, uh, for our kids to learn the Word of God, too. And uh, as they're going, well, we sang that Agnes Day, the, um, the holy, holy, holy. And having just completed a, a three-week survey of eschatology and really focusing on those end times, boy, that just that got me. That really choked me up uh, to think that that's where we're heading. Whatever our eschatological view is, where we're heading is that throne room where God will be praised as holy, holy, holy. Just amazing. So uh, in order to start our prayer, I just wanted to read a little bit from the book of Revelation, and then we'll pray, and then we'll look at uh, Exodus. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Let's pray. Lord, what a delightful view of the throne room of heaven to hear that the prayers of your saints mingle with the incense that comes before you, that fills the, the holy of holies, Lord as Aaron would offer incense on the, the altar of incense, it would fill the entire tabernacle. It would fill the holy place. It went everywhere. And Lord, that's our prayers, is as we offer them to you, you hear from your most holy place, from, your, from the earth, everywhere. Lord, wherever you are, you hear your people pray. And so, Lord, would you be with us now as we pray? And Father, I confess to you that the section of Exodus we're going to look at is very confusing. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what it is you're saying to us, help us to get a grip on this, and to, uh, most importantly, believe it, to put it in our hearts, to treasure what you have to say. So Holy Spirit, come and be with us and help us to see and understand your word. Help us to see Jesus more clearly and to follow him more faithfully. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in the end, finally, of the burning bush episode, that, that story of the burning bush. Had to break it up into three or four sermons because it's just too big. There's so much going on. And these last two stories, though they don't sound related to it, really are the completion of that. They are the, the end of it. So if you back up and you look at the burning bush, you say, well, what's going on? Well, it's Moses' commission to be the leader of the people. And that's true. But there's a lot more involved in that as well. And so uh, what we're going to do is, is this morning, we'll take a look at these two stories because they're kind of confusing. We'll take a look at them, and then what we're going to have to do to get it is we're going to have to back up and, and redo the entire burning bush story again. So that's how I want to approach it is just look at the stories, kind of cover what's there, and then step back and look at the big context and put it all together. So that, that's our plan. That's what we're hoping to do. So the way it begins is at a lodging place. Now, the King James Version said at an inn. Um, there was no inn. What this was was they had left Midian, and they were heading toward Egypt. So they were out in the wilderness. The lodging place was probably an oasis or just a place where the Bedouins could, could camp. So they're out in the wilderness and they camp. And then it says, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. The Lord met him. Who? I just always assumed it was Moses. But 
It's a little more complicated than that. As a matter of fact, this entire section, that, that first story of them at the lodging place, never uses a male name. Uh, the ESV says uh, that she touched Moses' feet. It, there's a footnote that says him. So this whole thing is written in a very ambiguous way. It just, God met somebody and tried to kill that person, and then somebody got touched with a foreskin. And that's it. It's just a, a strange story. Um, so how do we decide who the, the, the uh, pronoun belongs to, who, who, who that should go with? Um, does it mean Moses? Well, I kind of, when I first read it at, at a little more in depth, I thought, Mo, that's not Moses, that's Gershom. That's his firstborn son. Because the immediate context right before that is where God told, um, told Moses, as he's speaking with Moses in um, uh, verse 15 and 16, Oh, no, wait a minute. Sorry. Um, I'm sorry, uh, 22 and 23. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. For if you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. So then the next thing we hear is him. God tried to kill him. So it seems like it would be the firstborn, and the only son of Moses that we know by name is Gershom, so it must be Gershom, right? Maybe. <laughs> Let's look at it a little differently, take it in a little bit different context, a little broader context. That word sought, the Lord sought to kill him. Um, that's used a couple other times. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, Pharaoh sought to kill Moses because Moses killed the Egyptian. Pharaoh sought to kill him. And then the next thing is uh, chapter 4, verse 19. God says it's safe to go back because those who sought to kill you have died. And then here it's the Lord who seeks to kill Moses. So maybe it's Moses. I don't know. <laughs> Not sure. Um, it, it's, it's hard to say. But that just leaves us with these possibilities. Uh, so, so what happens next is the Lord comes and meets them in this place and tries to kill Moses or his son, most likely. And somehow, Zipporah, his, his Midianite wife, figures out it's because we didn't circumcise the boy. And so she takes a flint knife and she circumcises her son. And I don't know how she figured that out. How did she put two and two together? We don't know. There is so little detail in this. It's really frustrating because we can't figure out how these things happened. But uh, the idea of using a flint knife to circumcise, I mean, that's what Joshua did when, they, when Israel finally came to the Promised Land and they were about to storm um, Jericho. They stopped once they crossed the Jordan and they circumcised the men because they hadn't been circumcised in the wilderness and they used a flint knife. So that seems reasonable too. Um, what Zipporah then does is really strange. It says that she touched his feet with the foreskin. Um, the King James and the New American Standard says threw it at his feet, but that's not really throwing it at his feet. The way it's worded is she touched his feet. So let's make this a little bit more complicated, shall we? Maybe Moses is the one that God was trying to kill. He made him sick, and so he's laying down in bed because he's about to die. And so she comes in and touches his feet with the foreskin because that's the thing sticking out of the end of the bed. I don't know. Maybe she, touched, she circumcised her son and then touched her son's foot. And then turned to Moses and said, you are my bridegroom of blood. Hard to say. We can't really pin this stuff down. Um, apparently, though, that bridegroom of blood is some idiom or nickname or something. It seems to have been known to the Israelites because the way the section ends is, um, 
And that's when she said that. So you know that story? So um, it was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of circumcision. Like everybody knew that already. So that's it. Doesn't it don't you feel better now? You know, this is why we do all this studying. So that's just the, the outline of the story. What we're going to do is we're going to put that into context and try to make sense out of it. Just wanted to lay that out for you. So the next thing that happens is the Lord said to Aaron, Aaron's in Egypt. God has been doing this in Midian and at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb in the wilderness. And suddenly he goes to Aaron and says, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. I wonder what that would have been like. The, the meeting with, with Moses was pretty dramatic. I mean, it was a burning bush that wasn't consumed. So what did it look like when he shows up with, with Aaron? Maybe he had a dream, and in a dream he was told. Who knows? But he tells Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. Okay, he's a slave. He doesn't get to just walk out of Egypt. But that's exactly what he did. He just walks out and starts heading toward uh, wherever God told him to meet Moses. He says, go out in the wilderness and meet him. And so he went, and they met at the mountain of God. So the lodging place where God tried to kill somebody was probably out in the wilderness, and then they, Moses and his family traveled further and got to Mount Horeb, and that's where they met Aaron. And so they run into each other there. And so once they meet, it says he kissed him. Brothers meet and they kiss. So God met the Moses' family and tried to kill him. Aaron meets Moses' family and kisses him. There's a contrast there. So then Moses tells Aaron all about the words of the Lord and, and uh, the words that he'd give him to speak and the signs that he'd commanded him to do. He fills in the whole uh, uh, burning bush episode for Aaron. This is what's been going on. I know it's been a while since we've seen each other. Look what the Lord has done. Isn't this amazing? And so Aaron then speaks these words of the Lord to the people of Israel. That's what God said. Remember, God told Moses, go and say these words. And Moses is like, I'm slow of tongue. I don't speak so good. Send somebody else. And God's response was, okay, I'm sending Aaron with you, not instead of you. So you speak to Aaron, and Aaron will speak the words because Aaron speaks better than you do. So Aaron tells the people of Israel all these words that the Lord had given him, and they did the signs. So I was wrong last week. I said last week that they didn't do the signs for Israel. And what happened was I was reading a commentary, and one of the commentators said that. And I went, oh, that's interesting. I need to follow up on that. It's a weird feeling when you're standing in the pulpit and you say something and you go, I don't think that's right. <laughs> but it escaped my mouth and so I, I was wrong. And, and a, a dear saint informed me that I might have missed that. So they did do the signs in front of the people. The people see the signs. And do you remember what I said about those signs? When Jesus did signs, what happened? Some people were hardened. The Pharisees went, looked at him and said, he just healed somebody on the Sabbath. The only reasonable answer is we have to kill him. They were hardened. They didn't, they didn't come to Jesus. The other people, the believers, saw that and went, oh my gosh, this is amazing. God is a miracle worker. And then there was this group in the middle, the mushy middle, I called them, where they went, oh, that was cool. I want more of that. They didn't care about the, the miracle doer. They wanted more miracles. So in John chapter 6, Jesus says, look, the only reason you're here is because you want more food. I fed you and now you want more. So they didn't really care about what the point of the miracle was. They were kind of in the middle there. And that's the same thing that I said was going on here is Moses is going to come and do these miracles in front of Pharaoh. And what it's going to do to Pharaoh is it's going to harden Pharaoh. He's going to see the miracles. He's going to recognize that the miracle really happened. And he's just going to get more angry and go, you're not going anywhere. And then there will be the believers amongst the Hebrews. And they'll see that miracle and they'll go, 
God is with us. And then there's a mushy middle who's going to go, well, that was cool. Um, but then they get out in the wilderness and they're, they're this, this man is lame. I, I'm sick of quail. Oh, we don't have any water. And they're going to whine and complain because they want more miracles. They don't want the God of the miracles. So that's what's happened. But at this point, I was right. Because they come and they do the miracles and they show the people these signs. And the people believed and that God had seen their affliction. By doing these miracles, they believe God has seen our affliction. He's seen our need. And they bowed their hand and worshiped. So they, they see it and they worship God. Whether it's in spirit and truth or hypocrisy, we have no idea at this point. What you see is a positive response from God's people. So that's what has happened. That's, that's the, the story. That's how the burning bush episode ends. So they bow their heads and worship. So some of the commentators, reading the commentaries on this was interesting. You get to this portion, and um, Philip Ryken said, these are some of the most enigmatic verses in the Old Testament. Talking about the Zipporah circumcising. Uh, Douglas K. Stewart said, this unusual story has engendered many different interpretations and attempts at explanation. Um, there was a uh, Lawrence Kaplan in a, in a biblical review article said, the strange and mysterious incident of the encounter at the lodging place is certainly one of the most obscure and most discussed texts in the Bible. And then the longer one, Walt Kaiser says, due to its brevity, the abruptness of its introduction, the enigmatic nature of some of the cryptic expressions, and the difficulty of establishing exact antecedents for several of the personal pronouns, this paragraph has continued to baffle interpreters. There are a ton of different ways to approach that, that section. And what's funny is after each commentator said that, they then went proceed to tell you what that meant. <laughs> they interpreted it for you. So I'm here to tell you, they all got it wrong. I'm going to give you the right answer. <laughs> because these guys may have PhDs, but I, spe I studied Hebrew for three years, so I know better. I don't, I don't know if this is right. So if this doesn't sound right to you, I'm not going to argue and defend it. I think the only way we're going to be able to make sense of this is if we put that episode into the context of the burning bush. Um, some of the commentators would read it in its very local context and say it must be Moses that God tried to kill. And some look at a little bit broader context and say it must have been Gershom that God tried to kill. So what I want to do is kind of back it up and put it into the entire Burning Bush episode and see if we can't get at what is going on there, what it means. So that's what we're going to do. Let me just kind of recap Genesis and Exodus for us so far, and then we'll, we'll start tunneling into this. So remember, Genesis is about who God is and who his people are. That was what the book was about. It was answering a theological problem that Israel had. They didn't know who their God was. They worshiped a golden calf. They thought they were slaves. We want to go back to Egypt. And Moses is saying, no, your God is the God of heaven and earth. He's above all. And you're not slaves. You came to, you came to Egypt as guests, as celebrated guests. So it established for the Israelites who your God is and who you are. And it's a really important question for us, too. So now when we come to the book of Exodus, what's that about? What's well, those same two themes? It's God and us. How, does God, how is God with us? How is God going to interact with us? He is our God. We know who he is. We know who we are. How do those two fit together? And so the overview of the book of Exodus then is the first part is God redeems us. That's up through the Exodus. God redeems us. Then after that, what we get at uh, chapter 20 and on is God rules us. So there's about eight chapters worth of laws. And then after that, the rest of the book is God with us. 
He tells them about how to build a tabernacle. This is what the tabernacle will be like so I can dwell with you. So that's the purpose of it. So now let's come and look at this idea of the burning bush. What's going on in the burning bush episode? Because this is the first time that Moses has slowed down his narration and really dug in to an event and told it in a lot of detail. Well, I think one way to approach it is, you know, if, if you ever go to an art gallery or to a museum and you walk up to a painting, there's one thing that you see immediately. There's, there's the thing in the middle of it. And it just grabs your attention, whatever the subject is. It's right there in the middle of the painting and it really is the most important part. And my experience has been I sit there and I stare at it for a while and then suddenly these other aspects of it begin to come in and I see other parts of this painting and I go, oh, there's, there's more going on here. There's more to the story than just the person I'm looking at. So maybe if we approach the burning bush like that, we'll, we, we could start right at the center. What's the most important part of the burning bush? Well, my hermeneutic is when God speaks, that's the most important part, right? God talked, that's it, that's what it's about. Right at the center of God speaking is when Moses says, look, if I go to your people and I say, I'm from the God of your fathers, and they say, who is he? What's his name? What should I tell them? Do you remember how he answered that? His first answer is not who I am. He doesn't give him his name. He says, I am who I am. And then he says, so the name that you'll tell them is you'll tell them my name, I am. So. If you remember at the time, I said, why did he do it? That? Why did he not answer directly? Why did he say, I am who I am, and then give him the name? Well, when we looked at Moses, right? Moses, why was he named Moses? Because he was drawn out of the Nile. And Moses sounds like the Hebrew word for draw out. So if somebody comes to Moses and he says, my name is Moses. And they say, well, why are you named Moses? Well, because I was drawn out of the Nile. Why on earth were you drawn out of the Nile? Well, you see, the Pharaoh was trying to kill the Hebrews because God was multiplying us and it was getting really big. And so he, he said all the Hebrew boys had to be thrown in the Nile. So I was taken out of the Nile. That's, that's where I got my name. He's telling a story, isn't he? He's giving his background. His son, the only other person we get the background on is Gershom, his son that was born to him in Midian. So if somebody comes and says, so why did your name, dad name you Gershom? He would say, well, because my dad was a sojourner in Midian when I was born. And Gershom sounds like sojourner. Why was your dad sojourning in, in Midian? Oh, you see, he was, he was from Egypt, but he's not Egyptian. He's actually a Hebrew, but he was, and there's a story, right? So when God is asked, God, what name do I tell them? He tells them his story. Here's my story. I am who I am. I have no backstory. I have no beginning. I have no initial set of circumstances that brought me about. I didn't have somebody name me. His answer is, I just am. I am existence. The only reason there is a universe is because I am. So he starts with that magnificent, huge proposition. I am who I am, period, Moses. Now, when they ask you who, who sent you, tell them, Yahweh, I am sent you. That's what you say to them. So that really is the center part of it. That's the, the centerpiece of that story. Now, as we step back a little bit and kind of look a little bit further, then we hear some other things. One of the things that God says when he first talks to Moses, remember, Moses goes, I'm going to go look at that burning bush. That's something new. And as he gets close, Moses, or God says to Moses, stop, come no closer. Take off your sandals because right now you're already on holy ground. Moses freezes, he, he hides his face, he can't look at God. When God announces who he is, he says that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
He mentions it a number of times, but the first time he mentioned it was actually at the end of chapter 2, before Moses shows up at the burning bush. Do you remember the context of that? That was where, after rushing through Moses' life story, suddenly we get to the end of chapter 2, and it says, the people of God, the Hebrews, cried out to the Lord, cried out, and he heard them. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. He remembered it, and he saw their affliction, and he knew. And then the next section is God speaking from the bush, announcing who he is. I am the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he, said, he uses those same phrases, I saw, I heard, I know. So this idea of being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, repeated so many times through this, says this episode at the burning bush is this utterly transcendent God, this totally other. When we sang holy, 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 that is the most perfect explanation of who God is. Holy, utterly other, unlike anything else. Transcendent, who he is. This God made a covenant with your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this episode at the burning bush really has to do with God's covenant with his people. The covenant he made with Abraham. That's what's at the heart of this. It's the reason that God heard them and knew about their affliction is because in uh, Genesis uh, 15, when he makes the covenant with Abraham, he says, your children are going to be 400 years in a land not their own. And at the end of 400 years, I will bring them into the land that I promised them. So even the fact that Moses is off in Midian, the people are in, in Egypt and they're crying out is part of God's covenant promise. So this whole episode of the burning bush is just ringed about in covenant language. It's talking about God's faithfulness. The other proof of that is uh, twice he mentions the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevazites, and the Jebusites. And that's from Genesis 15 as well. That's how he describes the land to which he will bring those people after they come out of of slavery. So he mentions that twice. What, What Moses is doing in telling the story of the burning bush is he is ringing in the ears of the Israelites over and over again. This God, this God who's unlike any Egyptian God, anybody else, he made a covenant with your fathers, and he's the one who delivered us. He's the one who who brought us out. So that's what happens. The next thing that goes on is Moses offers some objections. I don't speak well. Uh, They're not going to believe me. This, that, and the other. God deals with those. And then he tried to kill him. Why did he try to kill? What is happening there? Well, first of all, if God tries to kill you, what happens? You die. Do you remember Herod when we went through Acts? Herod accepted the praise of the people. This is the voice of a God. And Herod just kind of sat back and smiled and then was eaten by worms. He died. Ananias and Sapphira came in and said, oh, yeah, hey, we're very generous. Here's all the money we got from our property. And then they fell down dead. Even more in the Old Testament, 2 Kings the angel of the Lord shows up and kills 185,000 Assyrians overnight. Just poof, they're gone. So if God meets Moses on the way to Egypt and wants to kill him, Moses is dead. He's got to be. God is not limited in, in that way. He can't not do what he wants to do. So what does it mean when it says he was trying to kill him? He sought to kill him. Well, I think what's going on is God is trying to communicate here, trying to say something very important is happening. Now, how did he try to kill him? Did he get sick? Did, you know, uh, I don't know, fire from heaven keep falling around the camp or something? No idea. Use your sanctified imagination and realize you're probably wrong. Whatever it was, 
God was doing something. He was communicating to him. Let's put that in the context of the burning bush. It's about the covenant, isn't it? It's all about the covenant. So when God comes to him at the camp and he says, I'm going to try to kill you, that has to have something to do with the covenant. And it does. Genesis 17. God says, I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring, your offspring who, by the way, are currently in Egypt, after you through their generations as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. I want to be your God. I will be committed to being your God. And I will give you and your offspring all the land of your sojournings. Sojournings, Gershom, the land where they're hoping to go. Um, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He will promise to be that. The other thing that he says is when he's talking about the covenant of circumcision, this is how he explains it. He says um, to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation who is born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and who is bought with your money, shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Now here's what we get at this I think the ambiguity in our story at the lodging place was, in pur was on purpose. It's purposeful ambiguity. Because listen to what God says next. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Eight-day-old child. If he is not circumcised, he has broken my covenant. Can an eight-day-old child do anything except for fill a diaper? So who's responsible for that circumcision? It's the father's responsibility. If you don't circumcise your child, he has broken my covenant. Both of them are required. Both of them are involved. Both of them could be in violation of the covenant if the circumcision doesn't take place. So now let's go back to the lodging place. God leaves the name out. Moses doesn't say who it is. Is it Moses or is it Gershom? It could be either one. Who's responsible for the circumcision? Both of them are going to be held responsible for the circumcision. If Gershom is not circumcised, he is to be cut off from the people. So both people are, are involved in this, and I think that may be why Moses left it ambiguous. It, it might just be because he's saying there's more to this that go, going on than what you think. Now, take it the next step. Where are they heading? They're heading to Egypt. Who are they going to see when they get to Egypt? The covenant people. If the child's not circumcised, is he allowed to be with the covenant people? He must be cut off from the people. Is it God's intention to cut off Moses and his family from the covenant? No, it's, it's his intention to fulfill the covenant promises through Moses and his family. So when he meets him on the road, he tries to kill him. And Zipporah, who must have heard about the covenant, who must know what's going on, goes, you know what? We got to circumcise that boy. And so she circumcises him. Now, I don't understand, and, and this is, you know, I, I did as much as I could figuring this out, but I don't have a clue why she would touch his feet with this foreskin. I don't know what that means. I'm I, not even going to guess. Did, he, did she touch Moses' feet or Gershom's feet? I don't know. I don't know why feet were involved, except maybe the best I could come up with was what 
was the last time we heard about feet? Moses, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. And that holy ground was the covenant God committing himself to fulfill his covenant. So maybe touching his feet is to remind him, this is a circumcision of the covenant. This is a covenant thing. Maybe that's what's going on. I really am not sure. So that's what happens. That's, that's what God is doing is he is picturing in very realistic terms, I am fulfilling my covenant with Abraham. And Moses, you have to fulfill the conditions. I have told you what it means to be in covenant with me. And you didn't do it for some reason. Um, did Zipporah go, ooh, yuck, we don't do that. Or did Moses just forget about it or go, yeah, it's, you know, I guess it's not important. I'm not sure. Think about, think about, put yourself in this situation of the people, right? They've been in captivity for 400 years. As far as we know, God didn't speak to them in those 400 years. We don't have any record of him saying anything to anybody for 400 years. That's a lot of generations. Maybe it got muddled, it got handed off poorly, who knows? If you back up even further, if you go from the time they went into Israel and back up, when was the last time God spoke? Well, you could say that he spoke in dreams to Pharaoh and to the baker and to the, um, the cupbearer. Maybe that could count. Or back a little further, he spoke in dreams to Joseph, maybe. The last time he actually spoke was to Jacob when he called Jacob Israel, gave him his covenant name. That was, that was a long time before this. So maybe the reason that they didn't circumcise, they just forgot about it, or, or the, the stories got confused or mixed up with Egyptians, because Egyptians did circumcision, but they did it at 13 instead of eight days old. Who knows? So maybe this is what's going on there is that reminder. So then what happens next? Aaron comes. Who will Aaron be? He will be the priest, won't he? He will represent Israel before God. That will be his role. So when he goes into the Holy of Holies, he will bear the names of the children of Israel on his breastplate. He represents, he's already starting to represent the people of Israel. And they come to Moses and his family and they kiss. They're not cut off from the covenant family. They're welcomed in. They're brought in. They're made part of it. So again, if we take the whole burning bush episode as one big story, what it is is it's God's covenant faithfulness, bringing the people in, going into Egypt so that he can rescue them and drag them out. He will get them out of Egypt, period, because of his covenant faithfulness. And then in the center of this whole thing is that big, huge picture of who God is. He's not the Canaanite God of the hills. He is, I am who I am. He's over all. And this God who created an entire universe with a word and we were talking the other day, they, they poked the Hubble telescope at a dark spot in the sky, the size of the tip of a piece of pencil lead. They poked it, there was nothing there. When they, when they did it for a number of days, when they looked, they found millions of galaxies in that dark spot. And each one of those galaxies has got millions and millions of stars circling it. And somewhere in this vast, huge array, this gigantic universe full of galaxies and stars and all of that, there's one particular galaxy, a little spiral galaxy, kind of often a cluster of other galaxies that God paid attention to. And, and one of those arms on one of those galaxies is a little star, middle, kind of middle of its life, nothing really spectacular. There's a lot like it. And God paid attention to that star. And circling that one star are a handful of little bits of dust. And the third little bit of dust from it, God paid attention to that little bit of dust. And on that little bit of dust, there's a whole bunch of life forms, but he paid attention to one particular life form. And, and out of that one particular life form, there was one little guy who didn't have hardly any children. He had no children. He was married, 
had an infertile wife, couldn't have children, and God paid attention to him. This is the God who we're talking about. When he says he makes a covenant, is there anything impossible for him? There's nothing impossible for him. He can do all of that. So how do we connect with this? How do we fit in with this? Well, do you remember when we talked about I am, who that was? It was the angel of the Lord. And when Moses spoke with him, he hid his face because he didn't want to talk to God. He was afraid to see God. He was afraid not to see the angel of the Lord. He was afraid to see God. And what we said was we looked at Jude, uh, Jude verse 5. And Jude verse 5 says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Who saved people out of Egypt? Who saved Israel out of Egypt? Jesus did that. When God announced his name, I am, Jesus said, this is, he's having a discussion with the Pharisees, and they said, well, Abraham's our father, so we're good, we're cool, we're in the covenant. And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That was not a grammatical mistake. He announced who he was. I am. And you know that he got it right because the next sentence says they picked up stones to throw at him. He announced, I am, and they wanted to stone him. So how do we connect with this story? This God who is so faithful to his covenant, this God who is so transcendent and yet so attentive to people, added to his infinity a human nature and came to rescue us. He came for us. He came to lead us out of captivity, came to lead us to freedom, came to rescue us from slavery, from oppression, to deliver us. This Jesus came for you. So what about the circumcision? That comes up in there. That's kind of an important thing. What about circumcision? Are we circumcised? Should we be circumcised? We just finished the book of Acts. That was a big discussion at one point in the church, wasn't it? You have to be circumcised. You Gentiles have to be circumcised or you can't be saved. And the church figured it out and went, no, no, they don't. They don't have to do that. That's, that's not cool. So how does Paul explain circumcision to us? Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the law. <laughs> If you want to be part of this God rescuing this people, you must be circumcised. You have to be. If you're not, God's going to kill you. We just did a study on eschatology. We know how it ends. If you're not part of this people, God's going to kill you. So how do you, be, how do you become circumcised? How do, how do you get circumcised to be a member of this, this covenant family? Well, what does he say? Circumcision is a matter of the heart. So how is your heart? What's your heart doing? How is your heart working? What do you seek after? Are you going, oh God, that was a cool miracle, do another one? Or do you see the miracle and go, our God is amazing? How's your heart? You need to be circumcised. And what does Paul tell us? Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. If you're not circumcised, you have broken the covenant. If you're eight days old and you're not circumcised, you've broken the covenant, what's your only hope as an eight-day-old? The only hope you have in the world. I hope my father does something about this. 
If my father doesn't act, I'm lost. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. If your father doesn't act, you're lost. So you need to be circumcised to be part of this family, to be part of this group. This great story we're going to hear about the Exodus is a painting. It's a picture. It's an echo. It's a shadow on the wall. The reality, the fullness is when God redeems his people, when Jesus comes and saves everybody, saves all of his people, draws all of them in. The reason is because that God, that God that is who he is, he doesn't write stories just on paper. He writes them in human history. That little dirt ball follow, swinging around a, a, a nondescript sun, he gets involved in that to the point where he writes in the way that everything unfolds across that exactly what he intends to happen. So we have this picture of this transcendent God who is going to come raging in against Pharaoh and work mighty miracles and deliver his people as an echo, as a little portion of the reality of Jesus coming. Jesus comes and he doesn't defeat Pharaoh. He beats sin. He defeats the devil. He conquers hell. He wipes it all out. It's all gone. He defeated the enemies, the foes that we had no chance of doing. The, his, the Hebrews could have risen up theoretically against the, the Egyptians and possibly thrown them off, but they didn't. Can we rise up? Anybody here want to rise up and throw off death? They're working on it. They're trying really hard. They've been working on it since, oh, I don't know, since the first person died, I think. And we can't do it. We can't beat that enemy. It's only our transcendent, our other God, our God who is who he is that can beat our foes. So you must be circumcised. And what happens when you are? Aaron comes out and meets you and kisses you. Who's Aaron in our, in our covenant family? Who is, who is our great high priest? Read the book of Hebrews. Jesus doesn't go into a temple made with hands, doesn't make a, a cloth tabernacle. That, he goes into the real, actual presence of the true and the living God. And he doesn't come in and burn some incense and throw some blood and walk out really quick. He goes in and he sits down. He's seated at the right hand of that God. That's our Aaron who's going to welcome us at the end and kiss us and draw us in. Not to a tabernacle, but to a reality, the real presence of God. That was our whole study on eschatology. There's different paths how we get there. We had a chart on the wall. And it had a cross for the crucifixion, ascension, or resurrection and ascension. And it had another line at the end of that that said, new heavens and new earth. And the stuff in between was different. Everybody had a different approach on how you get there. The beginning and the ends were the same. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension, there's our high priest. The end, the new heavens and the new earth. And how does Revelation talk about it? There was no temple. Didn't need one. Because God and the lamb dwelt right in the middle of it, sat right in the midst of the people. So that's what our high priest is doing. That's the promised land we're heading toward. It beats Israel. It just does. It beats Tahiti. It beats the Grand Cayman Islands. It beats the Antelope Valley. It just, it does. We got something great coming. And the way Paul described it, he said, no eye has heard, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what awaits us. It just get, it gets better. So make sure on the way, at the lodging place, God isn't going to try to kill you. If he does, if you recognize he's trying to kill you, he's waking you up. He's asking you, circumcise your heart by the Spirit. 
That's what he wants from you. So this is the, the burning bush episode. It, it, in Israel's history, it's, it's foundational. It is huge. It's, it's, it doesn't get any bigger than this. But it doesn't, it's not restricted just Israel's history. It echoes throughout biblical history, all the way up to Jesus, all the way up to us. And then how does the whole section end? Doing what we did today. Bow your head and worship. That's the, the right approach. The answer is not, God, you've done all of these wonderful, great miracles. Now let me help you save me. Let me just, let me take care of this last step for you. You're going to need my help here. The response at that point is what an eight-day-old baby does. Nothing. Just basks in the love of the Father. That's what we do is we, we bow our heads in worship and we say, Lord, you have done it all. It's amazing. Thank you for your grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for coming as a burning bush. Lord, thank you for giving your people rules, the, 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 the way to live. But most importantly, Lord, thank you for coming and dwelling with us. Thank you for being in the midst of us. And Lord, we ask that you would circumcise the hearts of all we know, everybody we know. Lord, we want everybody to join into this covenant family to share in the joy of knowing Jesus. And so, Lord, uh, we confess that like an eight-day-old child, we can't do anything about it. All we can do is ask, and then when you respond, Lord, we bow our head and we worship. So, Lord, would you be huge? Would you do amazing things as you build your covenant community on earth now? And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.